welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, August the 28th, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, August the 28th, 1963. Exactly 60 years ago today. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Culminating in the now legendary speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The I Have a Dream speech. You'll be hearing that speech in full on this episode. Plus, the significance of August the 28th in U.S. history. All of that coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Plutocrat Daily Podcast. A very good Monday to you, and I hope that you are well wherever you may be or whenever you happen to be listening to this particular episode of the Plutocrat Daily Podcast. Yours truly, Omar Moore here. And of course, you know this by now, it's, it's just automatic, but I do have to say it, it does bear repeating, and it's very important to make points very clear. And so this is one I wish to make clear to you, dear listener. You are a highly valued and much respected and appreciated listener. And I do thank you for taking your precious time to invest in listening to this particular episode of the Politocrat Daily Podcast or any one of the episodes you may have stumbled across or listened to uh, at any point over the last, I don't know, what, three years now plus three and a half almost. My goodness, three and a half years doing this. Wow, doesn't seem like a long time, but when you think of all the episodes that that are out for this podcast, ooh, it's a lot of episodes, but thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Time is precious, extremely precious, and so we have to make the best of what we have time-wise, and of course, as you know, tomorrow is promised to no one. I do hope that if things aren't going your way, or if you aren't feeling the way you want to feel, I do hope that that changes for you in short order, rapidly. And also, I do want you to know that I am a supporter of you. I am in your corner and wish you all the very best of success. And I do want to remind you as well that tough times do not last. Tough people do. So on this Monday, it's actually a very uh, historic, historic Monday, if you will, because here in the United States, it is the 60 year mark of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's right. Exactly 60 years ago today, on Wednesday, August the 28th, 1963, in the Washington Mall, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people at least 50,000 people, if not more. And that was a huge crowd back then. At that time, the largest mass gathering for a demonstration in U.S. history, if memory serves me, that would have been the one, listened to a number of speakers. I think every last one of them was male, by the way. I don't know. I don't think there were any. There weren't, as best as I can remember, any female speakers. There may have been a singer or two who was female, Mahalia Jackson was at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, but she did not give 
a speech in the way of politics, in a way of speechifying or speech like that. There were a number of speakers on that day. You would have heard from, I'm sure you knew, that a young John Lewis, I think he was like 20 years old or 22 years old, the youngest speaker on that day was John Lewis, who would then become, of course, a congressman. And he did pass away a two or three years ago now, back in 2000, actually, 2020, pardon me, 2020, during the pandemic year, well, the heightened pandemic year, the pandemic's still with us. But John Lewis spoke at the March on Washington. By the way, his speech had to be heavily, uh, not redacted per se, but to be revised and rewritten because it was really something that was very much the opposite of the rhetoric of Dr. King. Uh, was much more um, potent and speaking more truth to power and much more, as some say, and I hate this word, militant. But he spoke. You had a number of other people speaking. Roy Wilkins spoke from the NAACP, and I can go on and on and on with the speakers. A. Philip Randolph, of course, uh, chairman of the uh, Sleeper Car Porters Union back in the day, with that stentorian voice of his. If you don't know anything about A. Philip Randolph, I urge you to utilize an internet search. Look for the internet search at a computer or an iPhone or an Android phone near you. And avail yourself, please, of a search function online. And look up A. Philip Randolph and you'll find out about who he was. He spoke at the March on Washington exactly 60 years ago today. 60 years, six zero years. And so there were a number of the speakers, and of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke as well. Now, the speech you're about to hear is the full 16 and a half minute speech from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's been dubbed the I Have a Dream speech. And of course, what the corporate news media does in the United States is typically play you the portion where he says, I have a dream. But they never really play you. Never heard them ever play. In all the years I've been around here, I've ever ever heard them play the portion of the speech. Well, you'll hear it in a few minutes time where he talks about the Negro people. That's what black folk were called back then. Um, have had a uh, bad check and that check has come back marked insufficient funds. You never hear that line on your corporate cable news media in the United States or anywhere else for that matter. You don't hear that line and that's quite deliberate. That's not some oversight. They just forgot to play that moment. (laughs) They didn't. It's very deliberate. So we are socialized to think that all that Dr. King talked about was a dream. And we aren't socialized to know about the books that he wrote because he wrote several books, including The Measure of a Man. Yes, that's right, The Measure of a Man. It's no accident that Sidney Poitier also titled one of his two autobiographies, The Measure of a Man. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a book, really a pamphlet called The Measure of a Man. You don't get taught that. Certainly the corporate news media doesn't tell you that. And if you go to Florida, oh my goodness, they'll pretend that Dr. Martin Luther King doesn't exist since, you know, Florida, Florida, of course, is uh, killing black people like it's out of style. And also, and I don't mean to be flippant or brusque or anything or glib about any of this. And also, you've got a racist and fascist governor there who is telling, you know, telling you that, oh, well, you know, we can't teach this black 
curricula. Oh my God, that's just horrible. We can't teach history. And we've got to make it clear to everyone that enslavement was beneficial. And yeah, there were some skills that... I, I can just stop there. You understand what I'm saying. So the corporate news media deliberately does not educate and schools in many parts of this nation don't educate you about your own history. Because black history isn't just only black history. It's American history, U.S. history. And I get people come up to me and say, oh, well, you know, that's black history. Oh, that's really, I really appreciate your podcast because you, I've had someone come up to me who I do know say, well, I do appreciate your podcast. You know, it's black history. Thank you for educating me. Well, it's your history as well. Yeah, it's your history too. And so you you just kind of go, okay. But thank you for the compliment. But, you know, thank you. I'm glad that, that this has been some benefit to you. But this is also your history, the country's history specifically. And we can't marginalize it to just say, well, it's black history. Of course it's black history. It's also U.S. history. It happened here in the U.S. That makes it the country's history. And that cowardice, that inability or that willfulness, that deliberateness, that deliberate not wanting to look at and examine history is why we are in the trouble that we're in, in this country, in the U.S. right now. That is one major reason why. There are other major reasons as well. So I just say all of that, dear listener, to just uh, say to you that what you're going to hear right now, what you are going to hear right now, is the full 16 and a half minute speech from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Given exactly 60 years ago today, on Wednesday, August the 28th, 1963, on the Washington Mall. Take your minds back right now. Cast your mind right now, dear listener, back to that significant moment. A speech that is not the most important one that Dr. Martin Luther King ever gave, but certainly one that is a significant speech. You've got to also remember that Dr. King wrote other books like Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, and also Why We Can't Wait, among other books. Here now, exactly 60 years ago today, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with his I Have a Dream speech. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves 
who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. <laughs> we refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time. Yeah.
to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone and as we walk we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead we cannot turn back there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights when will you be satisfied we can never be satisfied as long as the negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality we can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied 
As long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one, we can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom reign from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom reign from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom reign from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom reign from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom reign from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom reign from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom reign from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom reign from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom reign, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom reign, when we let it reign from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. There it was, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 60 years ago today, on the Washington Wall, over 50,000 people there for the 
March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And I want to just say that there were so many people at this march, people who were very well known to the public, celebrities, including, uh, and also historians and authors and philosophers and activists like James Baldwin, actors and activists like Sidney Poitier and Charlton Heston at that time, Marlon Brando at that time, Harry Belafonte at that time. And there were numerous others I could mention. Bob Dylan was there at that time. And so many others I could just bring up here and be here all week, really, to tell you all the people who were there. Uh, of note, Sammy Davis Jr. was also there. I can't forget him. Um, and there were lots of, as I've said before, lots of uh, women who were very famous who were there, but they weren't given any speaking roles at all, the sexism and the misogyny of the movement, of the uh, the human rights struggle. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a, something that really does rub me the wrong way as a human being who cares about human beings. You know, you've got to have women have a voice in these movements. In fact, they've been leading these movements forever, if you cast your mind back through history. And you've got to look at the fact that you had so many black women who were instrumental in the civil rights, human rights struggle in the United States over the last 70 years. If you look back to Rosa Parks, you know, if you look back to people even before Rosa Parks who did not get the kind of spotlight because the movement didn't deem those persons, persons who had their so-called right credentials, if you will, in terms of what their background was and, and who what their personal lives were. And Rosa Parks, you've got to look at Rosa Parks, you've got to look at Coretta Scott King, you've got to look at uh, Dorothy Height, you've got to look at Diane Nash, uh, you've got to look at Amelia Boynton. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on. And so, you know, um, you look at Dr. Betty Shabazz, but you've got to look at all of these people and understand that they're, that women, black women, paid, uh, excuse me, paid, but really paid, but and played a very, um, paid a price, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, they really did, and played, I should say, a significant role, a leading role in the human rights struggle in the civil rights movement. So that is something I need to underline here. Uh, that speech you just heard, though, is one that you need to really listen to. Again, it's it's a significant speech for me. It's not the most important speech that Dr. King gave, but it's the one that the corporate news media loves to remind you of because it's the Dr. Martin Luther King that they're comfortable with. That's the Dr. Martin Luther King they want to send to you every time you have a birthday celebration of Dr. King in January. Every time, every year in January, that's what they'll play. They won't play you the speech, the full speech that he gave the night before he was assassinated. They won't play that one. That's the mountaintop speech. They won't play you the entire thing. They'll play you only the last 10 to 15 seconds of that speech. They won't play you the Beyond Vietnam speech where he talks about the triple evils in the United States of militarism, racism, and poverty. No, 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 no. They're not playing the whole thing there either. They're not playing that speech at all. So... Look, let me tell you, that's the reality that we're dealing with. We have to educate each other and ourselves. And so that is the reality. 
And that was the speech. And again, I want to remind you of one of the books I mentioned earlier that you really need to read from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? That is a must read. That's a book that you won't see recommended on the corporate news media that you watch in terms of the cable news or anything else. So I'm recommending it. And you need to read that book. It's extremely important. That is Dr. Martin Luther King. And this idea that Dr. King was this, oh, he's just this softy and he's just all about let's everybody hold hands. It's just nonsense. And by the way, as you all know, as you out there all know, and as I know, Dr. King was not liked by white people when he was alive. The vast majority of white people in the United States did not like Dr. King. Now, of course, there were obviously some white people who did, some white people who marched with him, but there were many, many, many. Most of the white people in this country hated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And let me tell you, there were some black people who, in the last year or two of Dr. King's life, did not want to know him, acted as if he was a complete stranger to them. So they just did not like him weighing in on Vietnam. They didn't like it. So this is something that you really need to um, be aware of. Be aware of this because people will have you believe that somehow Dr. King was well-liked by white people back in the day. And these Republicans now who are quoting Dr. King and taking him out of context, some of them who are old enough, didn't like him either when he was when they when he was alive and i'm sure that the people who are quoting him now uh, they didn't like him either you know they're just doing this for their own twisted cynical political ends so i just want to say all those things and i do hope that you do take note of this very significant day and understand that we've got lots of work still to do in this country, in this country and any country to make a country work for everybody, whether you're poor, whether you're black, whether you are someone who is Latino or Asian um, and or someone who is Native American. I mean, you have to understand that uh, this country does not work for everyone. I know you understand that, dear listener, but we need to go so much further than we've gone to make this country a better place for everyone. That is what the goal has to be. And when you make the country a better place for everyone, you make it a stronger country. Right now, we've got a very weak United States because you've now got, and we've always had this, white racists and white terrorists who continue to add to the already unsafe country that we all live in. And that they live in. And those terrorists are often not just outside the government, but also inside state governments. I, I would look at someone like Governor Ron DeSantis as a terrorist. And it doesn't mean that he has to actually put violence out there in terms of physical violence. But he's doing emotional violence to people all over his state. Black people especially. So... If you want to look at it like that, you can call him a terrorist, certainly an emotional terrorist. And that does not lessen the significance of that word. 
When I come back, I'm going to be talking, dear listener, about the significance of August the 28th in the United States in history, particularly with a couple of events. That's next. I have to make a correction. It was over 200,000 people who were present exactly 60 years ago today for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I said 50,000. What the hell was I talking about? So I must apologize to you, dear listener. The number of people present for the March on Washington exactly 60 years ago today was over 200,000 people. At that time, the largest gathering in U.S. history for any demonstration, any march. That rally, that march, exactly 60 years ago today. I'll be right back. Dear listener, August the 28th has some significance in U.S. history, only in my view, because there are some noteworthy events that happen to have fallen on that date. Of course, you know about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, but there are also a number of other events on this particular date that I think you need to be aware of and you might not be aware of, that happened to fall on the date August the 28th. There are a number of them. I mean, we can go back to 15 years ago today. 15 years ago today, then U.S. Senator Barack Obama made history as he became the first black person to officially become the nominee of a major political party President of the United States. That happened exactly 15 years ago today. In fact, it was in Denver, Colorado, where then U.S. Senator Barack Obama formally accepted the nomination. It was during a speech in Denver, Colorado. So that happened exactly 15 years ago today. And I just wanted you to be aware of that. That's something that uh, is a really important uh, thing. It's a, it's a significant piece of history. I also want you to be aware of the fact that this date carries a lot of significance in other realms of history as well. On this date, in 1955... A very sad day it was in this country's history as Emmett Till would be brutally executed and tortured. Emmett Till was literally just 14 years of age. His body mutilated beyond recognition by white men in Mississippi. Emmett Till was just 14 years old. I have to repeat that again. 
the racism and the hatred run deep, run deep throughout many of the white people who exhibit and practice it every day. Some with violence, some through violence, some without the violence. So that is another very significant date on the calendar where August the 28th is concerned. On this date, by the way, in the United Kingdom, in 1833, the enslavement of black people was abolished. The Enslavement Abolition Act or the Slavery Abolition Act, as it was actually called, actually got the stamp of approval from, of all people, the Queen of England. So that is something that you should be aware of as well. And that's actually outside the US, obviously, but it's still a significant date on the calendar. Very significant date. I should also tell you that back in 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall here in the United States in Louisiana. Now, that's another important piece of information. Hurricane Katrina went on to kill, well, I don't know what the exact number was, but it was at least 3,000 people here in the U.S., in New Orleans and around various other parts of Louisiana and other neighboring states. So those are just a few of the dates on this day, August the 28th, that are significant to U.S. history. And I'm sure there are others. Those are the ones that I wanted to pick out as far as this episode of the Political Activity Podcast is concerned. And of course, I did include that one from the United Kingdom as well, with enslavement being abolished there on this date in 1833. So we're talking, if I can do my math correctly, almost exactly 200 years ago. We're actually 10 years short of that. So it's a 190 years ago, 190, 190 years ago today, enslavement was abolished in the UK with the Slavery Abolition Act. I think it's important to amplify one other point about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom is that this is not a celebration of a march. It is not even a commemoration. It is, as some people have said, a continuation of a march and a cause, the cause of justice, the cause of freedom, and the cause to make the lives of black people in particular better in the United States of America. Make the lives of any oppressed person in the United States better. First and foremost, to make the lives of black people better. When we look back just a few days ago now, just over the weekend, a white male terrorist in Jacksonville, Florida, killed three black people and made it very clear that he was targeting black people and that he hated black people. 
And we also have to make clear that our pursuit of justice includes economic justice as well, not just social justice, economic justice, which really is a part of social justice, but economic justice to get what is due to us, be it reparations, be it economic footing on other levels in terms of jobs and everything else, bringing down the unemployment rate, which President Biden has done, of course, but there's still lots more work to be done. And of course, being paid the same wage that white people are paid and white men particularly are paid. We as black people, and when you're talking about people, I'm also particularly looking at black women here, need to be paid exactly what a white male is paid for the same work. That is also part of this march on Washington that continues for jobs and freedom. That is our remit as a country. And since there is a presidential election next year, but you don't even have to wait till then, any politician who's running in any election anywhere in the U.S. needs to be held to a higher account in terms of what those politicians' policies are when it comes to economics, particularly as it targets black people. That is critical. These marches on Washington are not gimmicks. This is very serious, and it was very serious 60 years ago. And we have to continue that mission. We're not going to look back at 60 years ago. We need to also look at what we're doing or not doing now. For that is how we start to engineer what we need to do, what we must do, the work we must do and must continue. Because if we don't continue it, there are even worse times ahead. And in this country's history, you might not think that that means much given the history that this country has, but you do not want to find out how much worse it might get. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. They are entertainers and artists, and they've all come to Washington. There's seven out of some 200,000 American citizens who came to the Capitol to march for freedom and for jobs. Uh, will this tremendous outburst now uh, uh, lead to a course of action, Mr. Belafonte? Uh, the now that is being spoken about is the fact that in 100 years, finally, uh, through whatever the causes have been in history, and most of them have been because of oppression, the Negro people have uh, strongly and fully taken the bit in their teeth. They're asking absolutely no quarter from anyone. But I do say that the bulk of the interpretation of whether this thing is going to end successfully and joyously or is going to end disastrously lays very heavily with the white community it lays very heavily with the profiteers. It lays very heavily with the vested interests. It lays very heavily with a great middle stream in this country of people who have refused to commit themselves or even have the slightest knowledge that these things have been going on.